Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie, and it's a great pleasure for me to greet our old friend Dr Colin M. Barn, who is joining us today for a discussion about his five favourite TV series. Colin is the author of many books, um, including several for Extremist Publishing, which include The Craft of Public Speaking, Travels in Time, Dying Harder, and Planes on Film. And more recently, he's been known for his very successful series of novels, starting with Operation Archer. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him back today to talk about the five TV series that have meant most to him. Thank you, Tom. I've thought long and hard about what TV series to include in this podcast. For example, I was originally going to include Doctor Who, but eventually discounted the idea for the simple reason that the last new Doctor Who story I enjoyed watching was transmitted in 2010. So I have chosen five TV series which I consider inspirational. I've watched them all many times and have them on DVD or Blu-ray. I've also read a lot about each series. And the first series I would like to talk about is Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons, which was first broadcast in 1967. This was produced by Jerry Anderson, who's best known for Thunderbirds but was involved in the production of TV science fiction for about 50 years. Back in the mid-50s, Jerry wanted to be a serious filmmaker, but the only work he was offered was cheap puppet series for TV. And the first two he made were The Adventures of Twizzle and Torchy the Battery Boy. These used rather crude puppets operated by strings, But in 1958, Anderson invented a more advanced form of puppetry, later known as supermarionation. Instead of strings, the puppets used very fine tungsten wires, which unfortunately were still noticeable. As a result, Anderson proposed that TV cameras should scan horizontally rather than vertically, as the wires would then be less apparent. To make the puppet's mouth move in time with the voices, an electric solenoid was fitted inside the puppet's head to open the jaw. The dialogue was pre-recorded on tape, and electric impulses from the audio track on the tape recorder were fed down the control wires to the solenoid. The puppet's eyes could also move horizontally via radio control, and they were made to look more realistic by using colour photos of real human irises and pupils which were cut out and glued onto the puppet's eyes. The puppets also had real human hair and alternative heads could be fitted to portray different expressions. One snag of supermarionation was that the puppet's heads had to be large enough to hold a solenoid And that is why the puppets used in Anderson Productions, up to and including Thunderbirds, had oversized heads. The main technical advance in Captain Scarlet was the introduction of realistically proportioned puppets. This was made possible by fitting the solenoids inside the puppet's body. Another innovation introduced in Captain Scarlet was the use of rod puppets operated from below rather than string puppets operated from above for some scenes. This new method had been trialled 
in the Thunderbirds Argo feature film. The main use of this new technique in Captain Scarlet was in shots involving the female Angel Interceptor pilots. These sat in a fighter cockpit covered with an enclosed perspex canopy, so vertical wires couldn't be used to control the puppet. In the earlier supercar series, the same problem was solved by using a thickly framed canopy and omitting the perspex roof panel. One problem that was never solved with supermarionation, though, was walking. The puppets could never walk convincingly, and that is why they often travelled on moving walkways, hover cars, hover scooters, chutes, and so on. Apart from the more realistic puppets, the other thing I liked about Captain Scarlet was that each episode was only 30 minutes long. In fact, if you remove the opening titles, the end titles and the adverts, each episode would be about 25 minutes. So the scriptwriters had to pack a lot of action into each episode, helped greatly by the very tight editing. Incidentally, Thunderbirds was originally shot as a series of 30-minute episodes, but was extended to 60 minutes at the request of Lou Grade. The basic concept of the series was brilliant. An alien race known as the Mysterons declares war on Earth after an instant on Mars. The Mysterons have the ability to create a likeness of any living being or object which is then controlled by them and is also indestructible. In every episode the Mysterons are opposed by a paramilitary force called Spectrum who are aided by one of their operatives, known as Captain Scarlet, who has acquired the Mysteron's ability to become indestructible following an accident. The series also benefits from excellent music by Barry Gray and splendid miniature work by the late Derek Meddings and his team. As always in an Anderson production, the various vehicles are fascinating particularly the Spectrum Patrol Vehicle, or SPV. Now, of course, the popularity of Captain Scarlet has meant that in more recent years it's been remade for television and also in full-cast audio recordings. Have you seen any of those things, and how do you compare them to the original? Well, to be honest, Tom, I've only ever seen a bit of one of the CGI episodes of Captain Scarlet, which I think would be back in 2006, and I didn't really like it at all. I felt the CGI images didn't really have the charm of the original puppets. And I've I've never heard the audio versions. And your next choice uh, is something that will be immediately recognisable to anyone who is an aficionado of British comedy. And that, of course, is the groundbreaking Monty Python's Flying Circus. Something that will be immediately recognisable to anyone who enjoyed TV in the 60s and 70s. What is it about this series that's come to mean so much to you? Well, it has had a great impact on my life. I found it very inspirational. It's a series which divides opinion. It first aired in October 1969 and soon found a fan following. Some people don't find it funny, particularly the current younger generation. Others, like myself, think it is the funniest 
and most imaginative sketch show ever made. The cast were already household names when they made the series. John Cleese and Graham Chapman had previously made two series of At Last, the 1948 show for ITV, while Terry Jones, Michael Palin and Eric Idle had all starred in a Tea Time series for ITV called Do Not Adjust Your Set, which, although aimed at children, was very popular with adults who appreciated its zany humour. Most of the Pythons had also written for other shows, such as The Frost Report. Monty Python inspired a generation of comedians, as it showed you could break all the rules of comedy writing and get away with it. They were sketches without punchlines, sketches which merged into other sketches, and so on. Some of the sketches were highly intellectual, such as the All England Summarised Proust competition. The series was not terribly well received when it first appeared, but it rapidly became a cult classic, and 45 half-hour episodes were made between 1969 and 1974. At the time the last series was broadcast, the Pythons appeared on late-night lineup on BBC Two and admitted that they'd never made much money from Monty Python. Also, at that time, the series had never been shown in America, and the Pythons themselves thought that the Americans would never like it. But from 1975 onwards, the series became increasingly popular in America, and then in other countries in the world. Eventually, the TV series spawned four cinema films, which proved hugely popular. Monty Python's Life of Brian is now considered one of the funniest films ever made. There were also a number of concert tours, with the last being as recently as 2014, LPs and two books. After Python finished, Eric Idle made a low-budget TV series for BBC Two called Rutland Weekend Television, which led to All You Need Is Cash, a spoof documentary about a group called The Ruttles, based on the Beatles story. The Ruttles, led by the late musician Neil Innes, subsequently made three albums and actually did concert tours until fairly recently. There are even still Ruttles tribute bands, which seems bizarre because the Ruttles themselves were a parody of the Beatles. Terry Jones and Michael Palin made a series called Ripping Yarns and John Cleese, of course, made Faulty Towers. But it is the original Monty Python TV series which is a special place in my heart and has been a great inspiration for many of my cartoons and humorous writing. What's so funny about Monty Python is that a lot of the humour comes from making fun of the techniques of television, yet 50 years later they're still doing it that way. Another common technique in Monty Python is the so-called reversal sketch, in which a situation is flipped on its head. For example, there's the working class playwright sketch, in which a young man in a smart suit visits his father, who's wearing working man's clothing. 
but in fact the young man is a coal miner and the father is a millionaire playwright, resulting in some very humorous dialogue. Tungsten carbide drills? What the bloody hell is tungsten carbide drills? It's something they use in coal mining, father. Well, it's difficult to overstate the impact that Monty Python's Flying Circus has had on British comedy, and indeed on TV comedy generally. Um, and it's interesting to look back and see how people like you know, Morecambe and Wise, for instance, uh, were totally nonplussed by the success of Monty Python because it was just so different from the comedy that had preceded it on British television. What is it you think is the, you know, the quintessential uh, aspect of the Monty Python comedy, the surrealism, um, that came to really take hold in British pop culture from then on? Well, the, the humour in Monty Python really evolved from the Cambridge Footlights Review in the early 60s. So it was created by people who were highly intelligent, highly well-read, who were studying for degrees, whether the degrees were in medicine or English or history or philosophy, whereas the Morecambe and Wise type humour really originated from English music halls. So it's really totally different styles of comedy. And of course you mentioned those Monty Python movies which all have a, a cult following, uh, The Life of Brian especially so, but how do you rate the other films like The Holy Grail and uh, Meaning of Life? I really loved Holy Grail, it was actually made at Dune Castle which is only about three quarters of a mile from where I used to live in Dune so I visited Dune Castle many times. I feel that by The Meaning of Life they were beginning to run out of steam. The problem with the meaning of life is that they couldn't think of an overall theme for a movie. They could only think of a number of sketches. So they simply stitched all these sketches together under one overall title. And I don't think it was a complete success, that film, although it did have its moments. So your next selection of favourite television series is one which was critically acclaimed and quite controversial in its time, and that is Secret Army. Yes, Secret Army was first broadcast on BBC One in September 1977, and it was the brainchild of one of the greatest TV producers and writers the BBC ever had, namely Jerry Glaister. Now, Jerry served in the RAF during the Second World War and was responsible for a large number of famous TV dramas between the 60s and the 80s, including Dr Finlay's Casebook, the forensic medicine drama The Expert, and soap operas like The Brothers. Glaister also produced what might be described as a quadrilogy of series set during the Second World War, namely Moonstrike in 1963, Colditz, 72 to 74, Secret Army from 1977 to 79, and The Fourth Arm in 1983. Of these four productions, I would consider Secret Army to be the best, with Colditz a close second. Like its predecessor, Colditz, Secret Army was largely based on true events and told the story of an escape line for downed Allied bomber crews, which was called Lifeline. In real life, the organisation was called the Comet Line and was run by a young Belgian girl 
called Dee Dee. The headquarters of the fictitious lifeline was a cafe restaurant in Brussels known as the Condide, which was run by a character called Albert Foiré, played by Bernard Hepton. In the first series, the head of Lifeline was a young Belgian nurse, Lisa, played by Jeanne Francis. At the start of series two, Lisa is killed in an Allied bombing raid in Saint-Nazaire and Albert Foiré himself takes over as head of Lifeline. The series received much praise for the high quality of its script, its acting and its attention to detail. It was made with the full cooperation of the RAF Museum. Vehicles, weapons and uniforms were mostly correct for the period. As the series was made as a joint venture with Belgian television, much filming was carried out in Brussels, greatly adding to the authenticity of the series. Many of the episodes feature nail-biting tension and don't always have a happy ending, with many key characters being killed off. The final series, broadcast in late 1979, has a few action-orientated episodes, with one called Light the Blue Touch Paper being about an attack by the Belgian resistance on a V-weapon site. The RAF regiment provided soldiers for these action episodes. Following the end of the series, an exhibition was staged at the RAF Museum in Hendon, which featured props, sets and production drawings from the series. 45 years after it was first made, the series remains popular. It's available as a DVD box set, there's a Facebook discussion group and also a very comprehensive book by Andy Priestley about the making of the show. Three series were made with the last episode set in May 1945, just after VE Day. However, one more episode called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? set in 1969 was made but never broadcast. Various reasons have been put forward for this, including the old age makeup not being realistic enough, the scripts being poor, and also that the whole episode was very anti-communist, something that upset the bigwigs at the BBC. This final episode has never been released on DVD, but has appeared on YouTube more than once and been taken down almost immediately. However, at the time of recording this podcast, it is on Daily Motion, so if you want to see it, I suggest you go there. Secret Army spawned a sequel, Kessler, which followed the life of the series Antihero. Nazi officer Ludwig Kessler, played by Clifford Rose, who went to live in Argentina after the war. Secret Army also inspired two comedy series, the well-known Allo Allo, and also another sitcom, Fairly Secret Army, starring Geoffrey Palmer. The original Secret Army, though, remains one of my favourite all-time dramas. 
Now I seem to recall that Secret Army uh, was particularly praised for its production values and its location filming. Uh, in fact, Colditz was filmed not so very far from here at Extremist Publishing um, on the grounds of Stirling Castle. Um, would you like to say something about the way that Secret Army was uh, so well ahead of its time when it came to those, those very fine details? Yeah, there, there was a great attention to detail in the series, particularly with military vehicles, because a lot of uh, very large budget films, even made in the 60s and 70s, would often use American trucks and tanks with German crosses stuck on them to represent Nazi vehicles, and this was done purely to save money. But most of the German vehicles that were used in Secret Army were correct for the period. The uniforms were also very authentic, and the events that happened were also true to historical fact. Well, the next item on your list is a series that I'm sure will be immediately recognisable to many people uh, who enjoyed thriller and action TV in the late 70s, and that is The Professionals. Yes, the fourth of my five favourite TV shows is the well-known drama The Professionals, which was broadcast on ITV between 1977 and 1983 and made household names out of its stars, Martin Shaw and Lewis Collins. The Professionals was the creation of writer Brian Clemens, who's probably one of the greatest British TV and screen writers. Clemens originally worked for the Dandiger brothers in the late 50s and early 60s, writing scripts for low-budget cinema productions. In the 60s, Clemens wrote a large number of episodes for various TV series, but he's best remembered for his involvement in four series, namely The Avengers, The New Avengers, Thriller and The Professionals. In 1977, Clemens started work on a series that was originally known as The A-Squad and dealt with an organisation called Criminal Investigation 5, or CI5 for short. The show was originally said to have been inspired by Starsky and Hutch, a popular American cop show starring David Soule and Paul Michael Glazer. In my opinion, though, The Professionals was far superior to Starsky and Hutch and was probably Brian Clemens' best show. The two lead characters were Ray Doyle, an ex-policeman, and William Arthur, Philip Bodie, referred to simply as Bodie in the series, who was a former British Army paratrooper. Veteran Scottish actor Gordon Jackson played their boss, George Cowley. Originally, Doyle was to be played by John Finch and Bodie by Anthony Andrews. However, John Finch turned down the role, saying he could never play a policeman. He was replaced by Martin Shaw, and Anthony Andrews was replaced by Lewis Collins after just one week's filming. Although Anthony Andrews was a fine actor, Brian Clemens felt he was too similar in both appearance and acting style to Martin Shaw. Clemens felt that Bodie needed to be played by someone who was totally different to Martin Shaw and possibly didn't get on with him. He remembered Lewis Collins, who'd played opposite Martin Shaw in a new Avengers episode called Obsession. The two had not got on well during the filming of that episode and Clemens thought 
he was ideal for the part, as the two of them would be like nitro and glycerin. 57 episodes of the series were made over four years, and it was a huge hit around the world. One thing that made it so good was that it was made entirely on 16mm colour film and shot on location. Even car scenes, which would have been done in the studio in most productions of that era, were achieved by fixing a camera to the car. Most interiors were shot on location rather than using studio sets. This gave the production a very gritty and realistic feel. The scripts were excellent and hold up very well today. The stunt work was up to cinema standard and the production also benefited from excellent theme and incidental music by Laurie Johnson. Some of the stories stand out as masterpieces. Close Quarters, written by Brian Clemens, has many similarities with Die Hard as it involves an injured body taking on a gang of German terrorists single-handed. Blind Run is almost one continuous action sequence and Hunter Hunted features the first screen depiction of a gun with a red laser light sighting system. After filming of The Professionals ended in 1981, Lewis Collins made the film Who Dares Wins about the SES. This proved to be the zenith of his career. By the early 2000s, he was running a computer company in California and had largely retired from acting. Martin Shaw continued to have a distinguished career on stage and television. A follow-up series, CI5 The New Professionals, with an all-new cast, was screened on Sky TV in 1999, but was never a hit. Yes, let's talk for a minute about that uh, sequel series. Uh, Do you think it was the incredible chemistry between Lewis Collins and Martin Shaw that had made the original so memorable and perhaps the absence of it was why the, the sequel didn't quite catch on. Yeah, the this, the sequel was the uh, sequel series was okay but it didn't really capture the imagination of the general public. The scripts weren't really groundbreaking as the scripts for the professionals were and there wasn't the same chemistry between the two leads. I think that was the reason for the series failure. Well, moving on now to the final series uh, on your list, and uh, we continue with the theme of action and adventure with the series Ultimate Force. So the final series I would like to talk about today is the drama series Ultimate Force, which was screened in ITV between 2002 and 2008. Dealing with the SES, it started life as an attempt to put some of Chris Ryan's novels onto the screen. Chris Ryan was one of the members of the famous Bravo 2-0 ACS patrol led by Andy McNabb, which was captured by the Iraqi army in 1991. However, Chris Ryan was not captured and made it back to Syria after walking about 250 miles. Chris Ryan and Andy McNabb subsequently wrote separate books about their experiences and both became best-selling fiction authors. In 2001, Bentley Productions looked at Chris Ryan's novels and decided 
they would not be suitable for dramatisation. However, they employed Chris as a technical advisor and co-creator in what eventually became Ultimate Force. And Chris even appeared in a cameo role as Staff Sergeant Johnny Bell in a few episodes of the first series. Ultimate Force told the story of Red Troop 22 SAS, who were often called upon to deal with terrorists on British soil and sometimes overseas. In a few episodes, they went to other countries. The lead character was Sergeant Heno Garvey, played by Ross Kemp, who at that time had a golden handshake deal with ITV after playing Grant Mitchell on BBC's EastEnders for many years. What was so fascinating about Ultimate Force was that it gave a lot of detail about how the SAS works. A couple of episodes deal with what is known as Selection, the basic SAS survival training in the Brecon Beacons, which many recruits fail. There was also a lot of detail about SAS weapons and tactics. After two seasons, Chris Ryan left his technical advisor and the plots became a little more far-fetched. For example, there was one episode, Deadlier Than the Mail, in which the SAS accept a female recruit, trooper Becca Gallagher, played by Heather Peace. In reality, the ACS has never employed female soldiers, although this rule may change in the future. All the same, the series remained highly enjoyable to the very end, with good scripts, stunning action sequences and good casting. It was taken off the air in 2008 because of poor ratings, but still has a fan following and was sold to 120 countries. It makes an interesting comparison with the Sky TV series Strike Back, which was based on a Chris Ryan book. The first three episodes of this Sky TV series featured Richard Armitage as John Porter, an SAS soldier, and were pretty good. Incidentally, Armitage also appeared in a few episodes of Ultimate Force as an SAS captain. However, once Richard Armitage left the series, it went downhill. Although it had a much larger budget than Ultimate Force, with a lot of overseas filming, it had overcomplicated plots which were very hard to follow. So I would consider Ultimate Force to be far superior. Well, Colin, the selection of different TV series spans a number of different eras and different genres, but the one thing that seems to connect them all uh, is a kind of groundbreaking innovation uh, and a willingness to stretch the possibilities of what television is capable of. Given that that's the case, how do you think modern TV compares to these classic series? And do you think that there's a chance that there's still a golden age of TV still to come? I think there are still some excellent TV series around. I mean, I watch a lot of television with my wife and I find it's a bit 50-50. I think about half of all TV productions that are made today are very good, but the other half suffer from a number of problems such as over-complicated plots. I think that's a problem with a lot of TV series. Now, the plots are simply over-complicated and very hard to follow. Also, I think there are a few series that are ruined by excessive political correctness. 
Well, Colin, thank you so much for having taken the time today to share with us some of your TV memories and to discuss the TV shows that have meant the most to you over the last few years. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.